My name is Maggie Freeling. I'm a journalist and producer, and this is Unjust and Unsolved, a podcast about people who I believe are wrongfully incarcerated for crimes that are actually unsolved. You've surely heard stories like these on the news, but the thing is, the ones you've heard about barely scratch the surface. The Innocence Project gives a conservative estimate that about 20,000 innocent people are currently locked away in U.S. prisons. After reading some of these stories, I felt compelled to do something. So I sent 20 letters to people who are locked up despite evidence pointing away from them. Some responded through mail, some emailed, and some called me on contraband cell phones. But all wanted their stories to be heard. So I left my public radio job and decided to do just that. In each episode, I speak with those people, their loved ones, supporters, and lawyers, to shed light on how they wound up incarcerated for decades, despite the evidence, and how that means the crimes they were convicted of are still unsolved. This week, I'm telling the story of Charles Erickson. On Halloween night 2001, sports editor Kent Heitholt was found brutally beaten and strangled in his work parking lot in Columbia, Missouri. Murder of sports journalist Kent Heitholt. Two years later, teenager Charles Erickson pled guilty to the murder. He says he and his friend Ryan Ferguson killed Heitholt after a night of blackout drinking and drug use. He says he can't recall a single detail from that night in 2001. On top of his confession, a janitor placed Charles and his friend at the scene. Said the two teens committed the murder. But since then, he's recanted, and police and prosecutor misconduct has been exposed. Attorney Kathleen Zellner, made famous by the Netflix documentary Making a Murderer, took Ryan's case pro bono and was able to get him released. The first day of freedom for Ryan Ferguson after nearly a decade in jail, convicted of murder. His supposed accomplice, however, well, he's still in prison, Charles Erickson. That's despite Zellner saying she found a mountain of evidence proving Ryan and Charles are both innocent. So why is Charles still in prison? And who did kill Kent Heitholt? We'll get to that after this. Have y'all joined the Unjust and Unsolved Facebook discussion group yet? If you haven't, it is a community of people discussing these cases, sharing petitions, loved ones, family members, supporters, advocates are all there. And there's a lot of people who have been wrongfully incarcerated themselves. So hop on in there and get involved in the discussion. Charles's case was the first I looked into, and that's because of the popularity of Ryan Ferguson. The documentary Dream Killer about Ryan came out in 2015 and really brought national attention to Ryan's case. Ryan is now on the board of the Innocence Project, and it just blew my mind that there was another person still in jail for the same crime when the prosecution's entire theory rests on the two men working together. Charles's case was one of the first wrongful conviction claims I ever really paid attention to. I remember reading and hearing in the media about this crazy guy who was having flashbacks to a murder he didn't commit. There were some memories that that I knew that they were significant, but they were just like snapshots, like you pause a movie. And there are things that you've remembered that have come back to you since... You talk to the police. Yes, that's correct. And so when I decided to work full-time on wrongful convictions, Charles was the first person I wanted to speak with. Did your family always believe in your innocence, or 
you know, I know at the beginning you were convinced that you did it. Did So what was their position on that? My mom, her father was a, was a cop. Her uncle was a cop. Her brother's a cop. Mm. She's from Chicago. And my, my dad's a lawyer. He was, I think, an assistant prosecutor for a while. I, a lot of people hadn't heard of false confessions when I got arrested. And especially in, in New York, maybe, but it, not in Columbia, Missouri. Yeah. And I, I think that, and, and coming from, and I think a lot of people, too, when they watch the news and they see somebody's been arrested for something, they assume that they're guilty. And so they, you know, a lot of people thought that I was guilty. And a lot of people thought, well, why would he say that if he wasn't guilty? And I think my family felt the same way. On Halloween night, 2001, the sports editor for the Columbia Tribune, that's the local paper in Columbia, Missouri, was headed to his car in the Tribune parking lot as he left work. This is back when newspapers still had copy desks and late deadlines, so it wasn't unusual for an editor to leave work pretty late. Kent Heitholt said goodbye to a colleague near his car around 2.10 a.m. and then apparently spotted a stray cat in the parking lot and paused to feed the cat with some food he kept in his car. The gesture led to his death. Kent was murdered in the Tribune parking lot sometime around 2.20 a.m. Kent Heitholt's murder was incredibly brutal. The 48-year-old had been attacked from behind and violently bludgeoned, and then strangled by his own belt. His body was found next to his car. Heitholt left behind his wife and two teenage kids. He was a kind person. He liked the people he worked with, and he loved his family, loved his kids. Fellow Tribune employee Michael Boyd was the last person to see Heitholt alive in the parking lot, and there were witnesses. Shauna Ort remembers seeing two shadowy figures emerge from behind the car. One ran away. The other, a college-aged male, she says, stopped to speak. The witnesses were two janitors at the Tribune. One of the janitors, Shauna Ornt, said she very clearly saw one of the men and worked with detectives to create a composite sketch. Looked me dead in the eyes and said, somebody's hurt. And he walked off casually, like nothing had happened. Shauna said she got a good look at the man who spoke. He was tall, he was skinny, he had light-colored hair. Here is part of the 911 call from Shauna and the other janitor, Jerry Trump. 911, what is your emergency? Um, we need someone here at the Columbia Daily Tribune. What's going on? Um, I'm not sure. I was just told to call 911. There's somebody hurt outside. Okay, I, is there anybody who can tell me what's going on there? We need here. We're at the main building of the Tribune. You're at the 101 4th Street? Uh, yeah. And what's going on? In the parking lot behind where Kentucky Fried Chicken used to be. The sports editor, Kent, laying on the ground, pool of blood. Looks like he's been shot or something. There were two boys out there, two young guys just a minute ago. Okay, he's on the parking lot behind the Tribune on the KFC side? Yes, yes. Hold on just a second, okay? All right. Okay. What's his name? Kent is his name. Okay. I don't know, high school or something. Don't go outside. Okay, who did you see? Who did you see in the area? Who did you see in the area? I saw two guys in the area. Were they white or black? White. We'll get back to the janitors later. 
Meanwhile, Charles Erickson was a 17-year-old junior in high school. His friends called him Chuck. He'd never been in huge trouble, but he had a few run-ins and definitely had a bit of a wild streak. That Halloween Eve, he and his friend Ryan Ferguson snuck into a bar nearby the Tribune and were kicked out at about 1.20 a.m., an hour before the murder. Ryan says he brought Charles home, and that was it for the night. At the time, Charles had a job and was taking college classes. Early in his life, teachers told his parents he was intellectually gifted. Charles was into Boy Scouts, orchestra, wrestling, and swimming. Charles also ran track, which is where he got to know Ryan. He competed in marketing classes and won a partial marketing scholarship. But I spoke with his mom, Marianne, and she says as he got older, he started to go down a different path from the all-American athlete and academic. And at the time he was 19, I think he was very distracted socially and also with uh, drugs and alcohol in the Columbia, Missouri area, which is a college town. Charles partied a lot. He had just been discharged from probation for a marijuana charge, and he often drank and did drugs until blackout, including LSD, mushrooms, cocaine, and Adderall, which sounds pretty hardcore, but let's be honest, he's certainly not the first teen to party until blackout. Here's what Charles told me when we spoke. That friends, especially the relationships that I had before I were before I was arrested, those relationships were you know, based on drug use and, and drinking and partying and they weren't based on anything substantial. Now, Charles and Ryan weren't picked up right away for Heitholt's murder. In fact, the case proved to be a tough one. A couple years go by, and police still had no solid leads. So in 2003, the paper Heitholt worked for, the Columbia Tribune, put out an anniversary article discussing the case, along with the composite sketch from the witnesses, the janitors. Charles's substance abuse issues only got worse during this time, and he started to experience feelings of paranoia. One day, Charles saw the anniversary article and started to remember pieces of that Halloween night. He was with Ryan Ferguson, and they were at a Halloween party and then a bar near the crime scene. But that was about all he remembers. They partied way too hard, and the rest was a blackout. He does not remember going home. And then he saw the composite sketch of the perpetrator and thought, it looked quite a bit like him. You know, and, and here, you know, I'm I'm blacked out. I don't remember going home. All I know is that I was at this club on the night the man got killed, which is a couple blocks away. So at this point, Charles was confused and started to obsess over it, thinking, what if he was involved? What if he killed Kent Heitholt? He can't remember that night at all, except that he was near the crime scene and this sketch looks like him. So eventually, he asks Ryan what happened. He told Ryan he might be having repressed memories of the night, and he just wondered if they had killed Heitholt. Yeah, and I talked to Ryan. I tried to have a private conversation with him a couple months before we were arrested. It was a bad time. It was New Year's Eve. We were both messed up on alcohol and drugs, and I tried to have a conversation with him, a private conversation, and wanted to just make sure I wasn't involved because I couldn't remember going home. And because I knew I looked like this person they were looking for. So it was just a whole bunch of speculation, what if, and paranoia, uh, delusion. And so that that is kind of like, was it a memory from a blackout or was it a dream? But speaking with Ryan didn't help. Charles told me it made things worse. The next thing I knew, people were going around saying I was a murderer. Mm -hmm. So I thought thought Ryan, and, and the police reports... I mean, they they show that Ryan was telling people, oh, hey, Chuck thinks he killed this guy. He's crazy. I didn't really know what to do. 
you know, and I, I didn't want to go to jail, and I thought that if I was involved in this, it wasn't a good thing, but I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I'm not a gangster, you know, I'm not going to go shoot Ryan. I, I, I didn't know what to do, so I asked my friend for advice, and I think in kind of some sort of subconscious, defensive idiotic maneuver i said listen i don't i don't know what happened and i to my friend art i don't know what happened i might have been there i don't know if it did happen it it might have happened like this and and so like i'm i'm kind of getting a story and i know this sounds sleazy but this is what happened i'm kind of getting a story out there that if i were involved it had me less involved and not ultimately responsible for this man's death. Eventually, after all the gossip, someone called Crime Stoppers with a tip that Charles Erickson and Ryan Ferguson were involved in Kent Heitholt's murder. After receiving the tip, the police got fingerprints from Charles and Ryan. The prints were tested and eliminated as a match for prints collected at Heitholt's murder scene. In fact, none of the evidence at the scene matches Charles or Ryan. And there was a lot. The crime scene outside the newspaper where he worked littered with physical evidence. Bloody footprints, fingerprints, and even hair. But if you're a detective, you're not likely to just forget about that guy who people said had admitted to the murder. Charles and Ryan remained suspects, and eventually they were picked up for questioning. Uh, this is this is all right, this is after reading the newspaper article in October. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of what I put together with, I mean, I don't know if I'm just flipping out or whatever, but I mean, this is kind of what I put together with what could have happened. We, I remember we were at the club, we ran out of money, like he'd been asking his sister to borrow money, and then from there on, I'm just kind of presuming what happened. I'm making presumptions based on what I read in the newspaper. Now, remember, Kent Heitholt was strangled with his own belts. But that information was never made public. You can hear detectives John Short and Jeff Nichols questioning Charles about what Heitholt was killed with. You said earlier about what you thought he choked him with? Or it's possible he may have choked him with something, is that right? Yeah. But you don't know what it was? No. Okay. All right. There was obviously a lot of injuries to this guy, so it was, it's pretty obvious that he was hit more than once, but you're not sure who did that, right? Yeah. So you, basically your feeling, or what you're recalling... I think I just blacked out. And then... The questioning changes. They start leading him when he says he doesn't remember, especially about the murder weapon, the belt. Do you see a belt in Ryan's hand? Something look like a rope, maybe, or a bungee cord? I don't know. Okay. You didn't put anything in your hand, though? No. Okay. I mean, I don't remember that at all. Okay. Um, so it's possible Ryan could have strangled this guy with his belt, got the keys, and you not. With the guy's, the man's belt? Yeah. His own belt? Yes. Does that ring a bell? Not at all. Like, I didn't... But you saw Ryan strangling though. I thought, yeah. Yeah, okay. All right. I mean, I might not even know what I'm talking about. I don't know. I mean, like, I don't even... It's just so foggy. Like, I could just be sitting here fabricating all of it and not know. Like, I don't know. I don't. Charles didn't know anything about the crime. He's surprised to hear about Heitholt being strangled with the belt. And this isn't an interview technique I can say I've seen before. Actually, it's pretty much the opposite. That belt evidence should have been kept secret so that it'd be a detail only the killer 
would know. Police often do this to make sure they have the real killer and not somebody who, like Charles, is just confessing to a crime they didn't commit. So when Charles didn't mention it on his own, it's really surprising Short and Nichols bring it up themselves. And it gets worse. Lead prosecutor Kevin Crane comes in. He tells Charles that Ryan was going to turn on him, and whoever confesses first gets a shorter sentence. Meanwhile, Ryan, who knows for sure they were not there because he didn't black out like Charles, had no intention on turning on Charles because he knew they were innocent. Here's Ryan pleading with the police. I'm innocent. Because you're innocent of killing this guy. I'm innocent of even being there. I'm not involved in this in any way. Again and again, he denied knowing anything about the murder. Yeah, that's exactly what I said to you earlier, man. I didn't... Oh, my God. You're trying to get me to admit to something I didn't do. But Charles was more malleable because of his blackout that night, and police know they're legally allowed to lie to suspects if they think it'll help them nail a criminal. So law enforcement is working him, convincing him he was there, by falsifying statements. The main one was from Dallas Mallory. Charles says he remembers seeing his friend Dallas that night near the crime scene. When asked about this, Dallas said he was never over there and continually said he did not see Ryan and Charles that night near the crime scene. But law enforcement falsified police reports to say that Dallas saw them near the crime scene to match Charles's story and convince Charles that he was at the crime scene. Charles told me he didn't know the police could legally lie. Uh, I, I assumed that, that they were being honest. And I, it was my first time in the system. It was my first time being in jail. And I didn't realize, like, all the things that the police do. I didn't realize he, he, that they can make up police reports. I didn't, right. re- I didn't realize that at all. And what Charles was actually remembering was seeing Dallas at the Halloween party they were at earlier, not the crime scene. Dallas also confirmed this later in Ryan's release hearing. Charles was confused, though, because he specifically remembered seeing Dallas wearing a police uniform costume at the Halloween party. It, it, it had me paranoid because I remember he was dressed like a cop and I was worried mm. in my paranoia that I might have seen him downtown. And so then I get to thinking, well, if I saw Dallas downtown at a stoplight near gas station, what could I have been doing? Why wouldn't I have been at the club? And so it was just a whole bunch of... Right speculation what if and paranoia uh, delusion in all honesty like i still don't know if i saw dallas you know i know i was at the party with him but it's it's really probably just, it's just nothing on top of this they were threatening charles with the death penalty if he didn't confess remember this is missouri one of the 28 states with capital punishment the police essentially if you've watched the interrogation tapes they basically said hey listen you need to say something because if you don't Ryan's going to put it on you and Ryan is saying you must have done this by yourself and your head's on the shopping block and unless unless you implicate Ryan you're going to be executed your hind end is the one that's hanging over the edge and Ryan could care less about it okay Okay? do you understand me yes okay yes now you better start thinking very clearly okay because it's you that is on this chopping block. Okay. Am I clear to you? Yes. 
And just a reminder, Charles is a legal adult. He's 19, but he's also a teenager with no parents present, no lawyer, and he's not under arrest. So he was not read any Miranda rights informing him of his right to a lawyer. And he's still an active drug user who's been struggling with paranoid thoughts. He doesn't think to ask for a lawyer on his own, and because he's terrified of the death penalty, 19-year-old Charles took a plea bargain of 25 years, second-degree murder, for his testimony against Ryan. Two years later, in 2005, during Ryan's trial, Charles testified against Ryan, saying Ryan killed Kent Heitholt by strangling him with his own belt. He was down here and he had a belt and he had his he had his foot on his back on the victim's back and he was pulling up on the belt watching this is hard seeing ryan's face when charles testifies is gut-wrenching and i asked about what fueled him because on the stand he looks angry and determined you were so convinced of what happened can you describe that to me a little bit i mean what was part of you know you being so convinced that you and ryan had done this i was looking at ryan like he was a bad guy because even though i i couldn't remember being there i thought we were there and i thought that he wasn't taking responsibility for it he thought he was doing the righteous thing by taking responsibility for the murder he was making things right that that sort of helped fuel me some Charles told me it actually took years for him to understand that he was innocent. And I think this is one of the hardest things for people to get. How could you confess to something if you didn't do it? I talked to Charles's current lawyer about this, Landon Magnuson. One of the theories, for example, is that Charles, who at the time of his arrest was only 19, right? A lot of psychologists or, or neuroscientists will say consistently that, you know, a, especially a male's brain isn't really fully developed until 25. So you've got this non-fully developed brain who has obsessive compulsive disorder. And one of the theories, for example, is that when Charles saw the newspaper article around the anniversary of Kirk Heitholt's death, he started suspecting himself and his obsessive compulsive disorder wouldn't allow Mm. him to let go of that. Mm. So, you know, already there's that. And then one final thing I think that really needs to go into it or any kind of analysis is um, is Charles' um, substance abuse at that time. He said Charles's situation was the perfect cocktail of different psychological, cognitive issues and substance abuse. It all mixed together to create an individual who is susceptible to false evidence and manipulation. With only witness testimony, again, nothing physical linking them to the scene. Ryan's car was searched, Charles's home was searched, and yet Charles is still convinced by police that they were there. And his testimony is what seals their fate. And in case you were wondering, false confessions are pretty common. According to the Innocence Project, in 25% of DNA exoneration cases, Innocent defendants made incriminating statements, delivered outright confessions, or pled guilty. After Charles' testimony, Ryan is sentenced to second-degree murder and gets 40 years in prison. A few years in prison pass, and by 2009, Ryan's case for innocence has gained a large following, thanks to his dad, who refused to be silent. Here he is in an interview with CBS 48 Hours. Bill Ferguson is a driven man. How many times have you gone down to the crime scene? 
40 or 50 at least. A real estate broker, nothing in his life ever prepared him for what he is doing now. Trying to solve a 10-year-old murder. What did you know about investigations before this? Well, I used to watch Perry Mason. <laughs> One thing Ferguson knows for sure, he says, is that his 26-year-old son, Ryan, is innocent. And with this huge following, Ryan's case had caught the attention of Kathleen Zellner, featured as one of Steve Avery's lawyers in Making a Murderer. It has become a national obsession. Now to a hot trend taking over TV. A Netflix documentary series that has captivated the nation. Making a Murderer explores the strange legal odyssey of Stephen Avery, who in 2007 was sentenced to life in prison without parole for the murder of a 25-year-old woman. I can't imagine anyone listening to this doesn't know Making a Murderer, but just in case, it was a 2015 Netflix documentary that laid out a pretty compelling case that Avery was innocent of the 2007 murder he'd been convicted of. So anyway, Zellner signed on to take Ryan's case pro bono. The 2015 documentary Dreamkiller features Zellner's efforts to get Ryan out of prison. And so when Charles hears about Zellner, he reaches out to her to talk. In a taped statement, Charles does something surprising. He recants and says he was coerced to lie by prosecutor Kevin Crane, who, by the way, is now a judge. May I call you Chuck? Uh, Mr. Erickson. Uh, Mr. Erickson. Okay. Would you um, read slowly what you've written into the record? Sure. Uh, I made a lot of assumptions and turned them into facts to satisfy the police. When I did that, I used the opportunity to move the blame onto Ryan and off of myself. Things happen much differently than I had previously stated. And so Charles lifts the blame from Ryan. He says Ryan was not involved. He says some other stuff too, but we'll get to the rest later. Then one of the witnesses we mentioned earlier, a janitor at the Tribune named Jerry Trump, not related to the current president, also recanted. He too says he was coerced to lie. My testimony was false. Right. It was Jerry Trump who testified today. Now, he's the man in 2005 in that trial who has said he saw Ferguson uh, actually at the scene of the crime. Now, in hearings to determine whether Ferguson deserves a retrial, he's changing his story. And today he told the court a story that nobody's ever heard. When you point to Ryan Ferguson in the courtroom, you said that's the person you saw at the Columbia Tribune parking lot. Was that true or false? False. So Jerry Trump, who you heard in the 911 call, was on parole at the time. He was offered a deal by Kevin Crane, the same prosecutor who is now a judge. According to Trump, Crane told him to say he saw Ryan and Charles at the crime scene. So he did. He says one man is responsible for the fake story about the newspaper pictures. And did you make that up or did someone else make that story up? Someone else did. And who was that? Kevin Crane. And then, as if two witnesses recanting and saying they lied because the prosecutor coerced them to is not enough, Zellner stumbles on a Brady violation. So a quick explainer, when someone's accused of a crime, they are legally entitled to see all of the related evidence gathered either for or against them. It's a pretty crucial part of our system. A Brady violation is when the prosecution does not turn over favorable evidence to the defense. In this case, it was the statement of the other janitor who worked at the Tribune. Shana Ort told Crane that after the murder, she saw two men fleeing, but they were not Ryan and Charles. 
She says Crane repeatedly tried to get her to say it was them, but she wouldn't. This is her on the stand at Ryan's 2012 hearing. I said it wasn't them. I, I told my boyfriend, I told everybody I knew. That it wasn't them? Yeah, that it's, it's not that, them. Okay, so you're referring to Ryan Ferguson and Chuck Harrison, yes. that correct? So at trial, Crane never called her as a witness, which is fine, that's his right, but he also never disclosed her statement to the defense, and that's not okay. So in 2013, 10 years after Charles and Ryan first became suspects, Ryan's conviction was vacated. The courts decided there was not enough evidence to keep the conviction. Today, for the first time in nearly a decade, Ryan Ferguson woke up a free man, having spent almost all of his 20s in prison for a crime he always maintained he did not commit. So if there was enough evidence to free Ryan... How come Charles is still in prison? Remember when Charles spoke with Kathleen Zellner? He took the blame off Ryan, but he was still convinced of his own guilt. Here's Zellner in an interview with Dateline. I thought he was going to say that neither one of them was involved in the murder, but that's not what he said. Things happened much differently than I had previously stated. I believe that I flipped out, committed the entire act alone and with little forethought. I was flabbergasted at what he was saying because I didn't think it made sense. I thought that the only way I could help Ryan was to take responsibility for everything because Jerry Trump put us at the murder scene. I don't know how you get around that. Now, you and I know that Trump recanted, but Charles didn't know that when he talked to Zellner, and he still thought, well, I must have done it because there's a witness. Like I said earlier, it took Charles years to believe that he was truly innocent of this crime. It's tough to wrap your head around. I know. He explained this to me in one of his letters. By the way, the lawyer he mentioned is one we haven't talked about here. Quote, what really did it for me was finally understanding that someone else's bloody palm print was at the scene. I hadn't understood that before. It's not mine or Ryan's and it's not the victim's. When I was in jail, my lawyer told me it was smudged and they didn't know whose it was or wasn't, but that's not true. They know it's not ours or Heitholtz, end quote. Charles and Ryan were convicted of the same crime, but their convictions were very different from each other's. Charles pled guilty. Ryan didn't. This meant Charles was going to have a much harder time getting out than Ryan. When someone pleads guilty, they're asked a ton of questions from a judge who has to make sure the plea is being given willfully and isn't in exchange for anything. The whole point is to make sure the defendant can't change their mind and back out after entering the plea. Here's Landon, Charles's current lawyer, again. So uh, just some of the complications that arise from Charles's case is, is, as opposed to Ryan's is that, you know, some is that Charles pleaded guilty to these crimes. So... Mm -hmm. We've, we've got to work with a different set of circumstances and facts. Charles told me that today he and Ryan are not on the best of terms for a number of reasons. But realistically, I mean, who can blame Ryan? Charles put him in prison for 10 years. And Charles gets this. And he does tell me, though, that he's happy Ryan's out and that he helps with that. I knew that I'd lied and I, I knew that that I put him in prison and I knew that I, I effectively traded his life for mine and so 
you know, right now, at least I can I can say that that I I did everything I can do for him, and uh, so that's that's one you know less thing on my conscience for sure, and uh, it's uh, it feels good it feels good to know that he's out, even though I can't you know take back the lies, even though I can't take back you know how my lies have affected my family and and his family and the idol family. Um, it feels good to know that that I've I've helped him go home. At a 2013 news conference after his release, Ryan also made a gesture of good faith to Charles. He started off by saying that there are a lot of innocent people in prison. There's a lot of people who need help. Uh, number one, as I think Bill already pointed out, was uh, Charles Erickson. I mean, the guy's a lot of things, but the, the thing is, more so than anything else, is innocent. I know that he was used and manipulated, and uh, I kind of feel sorry for the guy, and... I know that he's been victimized. He is an innocent man in prison. So, you know, he needs help. He needs uh, support. And, you know, he doesn't belong in prison. I don't know anything beyond that, really. And I don't really have any comment beyond that. He's not a killer. He doesn't belong in prison. So, Ryan currently has a civil suit pending against the county and 11 individuals, including Prosecutor Crane, who, again, is now a judge. The suit alleges that officials conducted a shoddy investigation, whether recklessly or intentionally botching their chance to find Heitholt's real killer. It also charges that officials ignored evidence of Ryan's innocence, pointing to officers Nichols and Short's fabricated statements from Dallas, and also the fact that Shana Ornt said she got a good look at one of the killers, and yet Charles and Ryan were never presented to her in a lineup. Charles has been in prison for 16 years. He passes his time by running. He runs miles a day and told me even when he was in the hole or solitary confinement, he'd run in place. The other thing that keeps Charles going is the dog program. He helps rehabilitate and adopt out dogs. He told me in a letter about one of the dogs he's currently working with, quote, Faith was in the shelter about two months ago. She was about to be put down before she was transferred to a no-kill shelter. She was a stray and had been shot at. BBs were embedded in her skin. It will be a good story if she becomes a service dog. The struggle the dog and I go through together in training is always interesting, to say the least. It's, it's hard to kind of like find quality friends in prison, which, which isn't a surprise, I'm sure. But uh, the, the dog... It, it's it's easy for me to bond with an animal, and it's it's really easy. Um, you know, a dog's not going to betray you. A dog. Uh, it, it, it's nice. It's nice to be able to 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 have a purpose in here, and it's it's nice to give affection and get affection back. And it, having a dog and, and training a dog and helping a dog get ready for adoption has really um, taken my mind off a lot of the negative things that I've gone through. Charles is also finishing his bachelor's degree and is thinking he wants to continue to work with dogs when he's out or go to law school to solve some of the problems he's been exposed to in prison. You know, I think it's ridiculous uh, that half the prison population's black. You know, I, I, I don't, you know, racism is not dead in this country. That Discrimination is not dead in this country. I don't think the drug war has, has been effective. We have a lot of problems with poverty. Most people in here are, are poor people. 
you know, a majority of them are poor people of color. There are a lot of people in prison for things that, that while they're not innocent, they shouldn't be in prison. There are a lot of people in here for nonviolent crimes, for drug offenses. And it, it's not helping society. It's, it's making society worse. I don't agree with taking somebody away from their family, uh, taking them away from their job, destabilizing them, putting them in prison simply for drug possession. It's ridiculous. Charles is up for parole in 2023, but Landon doesn't want to wait for that. There's tons of evidence pointing away from Charles. Bloody hair, fingerprints, and shoe prints found at the scene do not match Charles, Ryan, or Kent Heitholt. And the witnesses, Shayna Ornt and Jerry Trump, say they did see two young men. So who were they? And there's people who just didn't get properly investigated, like the last person to see Kent Heitholt alive. There is so much happening in the world right now, but I don't let it interfere with my happiness. That's why I have BetterHelp. BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You guys have heard me talk about this before. I love BetterHelp because you literally take a quiz and they match you with someone specialized for you and your needs. You know, you're not confined by where you are and your insurance because BetterHelp has counselors from around the world. And the other best part is BetterHelp is affordable and financial aid is available. So again, It's specialized, it's easy because it's virtual, and it is affordable. Listeners of the podcast get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash unjust. BetterHelp and me want you to start living a happier life today. Visit betterhelp.com slash unjust, that's better H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Betterhelp.com slash unjust. So if Ryan and Charles didn't kill Kent Heitholt, who did? Here's an interview with CBS's 48 Hours with the last person to see Kent Heitholt alive. Other possible suspects were not fully investigated. In particular, the last person known to see Kent Heithold alive, sports writer Mike Boyd. Did the police take hair samples, fingerprints, check Boyd's car? No, no, none of the above. Boyd was never interrogated, although he has cooperated with investigators from both sides. He did expect to come under more scrutiny in the beginning. After Ryan and Chuck were arrested, Boyd claimed that he also saw two young men by the parking lot. But that doesn't match what he told police on the night of the murder. Boyd stated he did not see anybody around the parking lot or anybody who was suspicious in nature. Okay. Is that what you told John Short right after the murder? I do remember having to go back and tell him that I did see uh, uh, two people. Yes, I did. There's no police report filed that says that you saw two people. Uh, later on. Uh, that night, I remember uh, there were so many questions, so many things going through my head that uh, it's just, and I'm still tired. Now, let me ask you a very tough question. Sure. Did you fight with Kent that night? Did you have anything to do with no. his murder? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. Charles has had a tough go of things. He doesn't see himself as that different from Ryan, but other people do. 
After all, Charles's testimony didn't just incriminate himself, it also landed Ryan in prison. And many people see his story as less sympathetic than Ryan's because of this. You know, he was convinced for a long time he was guilty. He's also often labeled as crazy. But Charles has a different perspective, that he thought he was doing the right thing, that he had obsessive compulsive tendencies and substance abuse issues. He told me about this. Then there's all these people clamoring to get him out. And there, I guess, you know, weren't as many people clamoring to get you out. I mean, what was that like? That, that hasn't bothered me. What, what honestly, what's bothered me is, the, and I, I've done interviews with people where I've said, hey, listen, please include everything. You know, I'm not asking you to leave anything out. I lied and I got Ryan put in prison, but please put my statements into context. And they didn't do that. And they actually went out of their way not to do that. And it seems like they edited the footage to try to make me look as crazy as possible. So Charles has started writing a book to tell his own story. He's about 700 pages in. And he also has more hope now than he ever has before. He has Landon, who he truly believes has his best interest at heart. Speaking with Landon, it's clear he isn't going to give up on Charles. Like my dream, dream, dream scenario... Dream scenario is by Christmas, he's hugging his mom at her house. Charles told me family is the most important thing to him. He told me when you're in prison, people forget about you. But his family has always been there to help him survive. A lot of people fell off pretty quickly. And the people um, who didn't fall off are my family, my mom, my dad, my sister, some of my extended family. And that's really when I quickly learned that, that family's more important than anything. And my family's uh, been there for me really unconditionally and really, really supportive of me. And uh, I've, I've, I've been an, an idiot. You know, I'm innocent, but I've caused a lot of problems for a lot of people and a lot of embarrassment for my family. And I'm really, really lucky that they're still there for me. When I spoke with Charles's mom, Marianne, she had just gotten back from visiting him. I just came back from a three-day visit with Charlie. How far is he from and, you? Uh, he is about 1,400 miles. Wow. And uh, we live in Arizona, and, uh, and Charlie is in Missouri. You know, one of the good things about uh, going for three days in a row versus... Um, you know, one day on a weekend, you know, every other weekend, which is what we used to do, is being able to really do a comprehensive catch-up. Yeah. And also um, do some distracting things like uh, eat great food, you know, uh, lots of different great foods, as well as uh, to play some Scrabble, which we all like <laughs> to do. Well, I hope, I hope he, and it doesn't sound like you will be losing hope anytime soon. No. You know, innocence is innocence. The truth matters. And there, there's a killer running around. Right. Or killers. And then I asked Charles the most important question of all. So when you get out, what is like the first thing you're going to do? Like the first thing. I daydream about going to the grocery store and spending like $300. That's... <laughs> That's probably, uh, there are a lot of things I want to eat that they don't have in here. 
Landon just filed Charles's writ for habeas corpus to the Missouri Supreme Court in July, stating that Charles is actually innocent and his constitutional rights were violated. The Ferguson family has also offered a $10,000 reward for any tips in solving the case of who killed Kent Heitholt. If you want to help support Charles, go to freecharleserickson.org. There you can find links to the Facebook page, which Charles's mom is super active on, and a change.org petition to the governor of Missouri to pardon or commute Charles's sentence. I reached out to Missouri Governor Parsons' office about a pardon or commutation. They said only after an official executive clemency application is received by the governor's office will they review. Landon says now that Charles's habeas petition is on file, this is likely the next step. Ways to reach out to Governor Parsons' office are also on the website. If you like this show and want to support the work I'm doing, please, please rate and review. It takes two seconds, and the more reviews, the more attention, and the more likely word about these wrongful convictions will reach the right people. Unjust and Unsolved is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. For more information and resources, go to unjustandunsolved.com. You can find Unjust and Unsolved on Twitter and Instagram at unjustunsolved, and Join the discussion on Facebook, Unjust and Unsolved podcast discussion group. Unjust and Unsolved is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at ObsessedNetwork.com.